This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. To get this episode of Forensic Tales ad-free, please visit patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. Forensic Tales discusses topics that some listeners may find disturbing. The contents of this episode may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. A little after sunrise on December 5th, 1982, a Mississippi truck driver made a shocking discovery along the highway. A lady was floating face down in the river. The truck driver ran back to his truck to call the police. But when the police searched the river, they found no sign of the woman. Instead, they made a disturbing discovery of their own. There was the body of a young child floating in the river. This is Forensic Tales, episode number 157, The Delta Dawn Story. Forensic Tales, I'm your host, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. Forensic Tales is a weekly true crime podcast covering real, spine-tingling stories with a forensic science twist. Some cases have been solved with forensic science, while others have turned cold. Every remarkable story sends us a chilling reminder that not all stories have happy endings. As a one-woman show, your support helps me find new compelling cases, conduct in-depth fact-based research, and produce and edit this weekly show. As a thank you for supporting the show, you'll get early ad-free access to weekly episodes, shout-outs and episodes, priority on case suggestions, and access to weekly bonus episodes. To support Forensic Tales, please visit patreon.com slash forensictales or simply click the link in the show notes. Before we get to this week's episode, we've got a brand new supporter that I want to thank. Thank you so much for Nora for becoming a patron of the show. You can also support the show by leaving a positive rating with a review. Now, let's get to this week's episode. The sun rose for the day a little before 7 a.m. on December 5th, 1982 in Moss Point, Mississippi. Moss Point is a small city in Jackson County, only 26 square miles, with only a few thousand residents. But everything about this small town was about to change forever. A little after 7 a.m. on December 5, 1982, a truck driver made a disturbing discovery while driving along Interstate 10. He decided to pull over to get a closer look. That moment, he spotted the body of an adult female lying face down in a blue plaid shirt near the river's bridge. He quickly hopped back inside his truck and called the Jackson County Sheriff's Department, the leading law enforcement agency in the area. 
Within moments of the trucker's phone call, a dozen Jackson County Sheriff deputies were on the scene. But when the first responding police officers arrived at the river, they didn't see a body. There was no female victim wearing a plaid blue shirt. So the officers decided to expand their search down the river, thinking maybe the body floated downstream from where the trucker first spotted her. Not long into their search downstream, the officers made a disturbing discovery of their own. But it wasn't the body of an adult female wearing a blue plaid shirt like the trucker described. Instead, Jackson County officers discovered the body of a small, blonde-haired child. The little girl was partially submerged in the river close to the bridge. But the Jackson County police officers were too late. The toddler was already dead. The girl appeared to be just a baby. She didn't even look like she was two years old yet. She had short, strawberry blonde hair that barely stretched past the ends of her ears. And she was wearing a flower-embroidered dress with diapers. Based on where her body was discovered in the river, the Jackson County Sheriff's deputies theorized that she had likely been thrown from the bridge. And based on the level of decomposition and bloating throughout her little body, the investigators believed she was thrown in the river at least two or three days earlier. Not only did Jackson County investigators have a homicide on their hands, a baby, but they also suspected there was another victim in the river, possibly the baby's mother. The trucker called the police earlier that day to report the body of an adult female wearing a blue plaid shirt. But the police found no adult body where the driver said he saw her. Instead, they found a baby downstream. What also troubled investigators was the location of the child. The section of the river where her body was discovered had been heavily infested with weeds and overgrown plants. It would have been nearly impossible for anyone driving on the bridge or Interstate 10 to see her. The only reason why the child's body was discovered was that the police were searching the area on foot looking for the adult female. They just so happened to stumble upon the child's body. Otherwise, her body was completely obscured from passing motorists on the highway. This suggested to the police that there might be two victims in the river, a baby girl that they had already found, but there could also be a second victim, the adult female found by the trucker. The police wondered if the child and the adult female could be related. Maybe they were searching for the child's mother. Jackson County Sheriff's deputies continued to search the river for the adult female. It quickly became an all-hands-on-deck search to find this woman. The department brought in all possible resources. Additional police officers were called to the scene to help search the area around the river. Helicopters and boats were brought in to search the river by water and air. According to the trucker, the woman was floating face down close to the bridge so the police knew her body could have floated downstream for several miles. But even after the river was extensively searched by land, water, and air, they couldn't find her. The adult female was nowhere to be found. She was long gone if she was ever there. Three days into the search, the police found something, but it wasn't the person they were searching for. On December 8, 1982, three days after the woman was reported, and the discovery of the small child, another body was found in the river. 
A team of underwater search and rescue divers found the skeletal remains of an unidentified male at the bottom of the river. The remains were found underneath the I-10 bridge about 60 yards away from the child's body. Because the divers only found skeletal remains, investigators theorized this body had been in the water for much longer than the child or the missing adult female. An autopsy on the remains determined they belonged to a young African-American male. Whoever this person was had died at least six months earlier and appeared to be completely unrelated to the case. Although only skeletal remains were discovered in the river, the pathologist discovered the victim had been shot in the head before being thrown off the bridge and into the river. But that's all the autopsy revealed. The police couldn't identify him, and he became known as the Moss Point John Doe. While Jackson County investigators continued their search of the river, the small child's body was taken to the medical examiner's office for an autopsy. Her autopsy revealed she was an otherwise healthy toddler between the ages of one and two. She was Caucasian with curly strawberry blonde hair. She was around two feet six inches tall and weighed about 25 pounds. Because she had been in the river for up to three days before her discovery, the medical examiner couldn't tell what color her eyes were. Her eyes had been clouded so severely by the murky river water that it was impossible to tell if they were blue or brown. But the medical examiner thought they could be any color. When her body was discovered in the river, she wore a pink and white checkered dress with flowers. She was also wearing a diaper, like you'd expect a child her age would. Her overall physical appearance was described as healthy. Her body didn't appear to show signs of significant trauma or abuse. And although the medical examiner didn't find any food inside her stomach at the time of her death, she didn't show any signs of malnourishment. By all accounts, this toddler seemed well taken care of and appeared healthy. When the medical examiner studied the child's body for injuries or clues as to the cause of death, he discovered that someone had tried suffocating her. She had significant bruising and suffocation marks on her face and mouth. But suffocation wasn't the child's cause of death. The medical examiner found a significant amount of river water inside the lungs. The water in her lungs suggested she was still alive when she entered the water. She wasn't killed by suffocation. She drowned. Based on the location of her body off the I-10 bridge, the medical examiner theorized she must have been thrown off the bridge, and that's how her body ended up in the river. It's believed that whoever killed the toddler first tried suffocating her. When that didn't work, her body was thrown off the bridge and she died by drowning. This theory explains the injuries to her face and the water inside her lungs. When the autopsy was completed, the medical examiner determined two things. One, the toddler was a victim of homicide. And number two, she died by drowning. She was still alive when she entered the water. But the medical examiner couldn't figure out one important detail. Who this toddler was. Who would suffocate or drown a one or two-year-old little girl? A little girl who appeared healthy and well cared for. Was the missing adult female also seen floating in the river somehow involved? And where was this missing adult female 
and who was she? Jackson County investigators received numerous tips about an adult female seen in the area around the Interstate 10 Bridge. Several witnesses told investigators that they saw a young adult female carrying a baby along Interstate 10 a few nights before the baby's body was discovered. The same woman carrying a baby was also seen on Mississippi State Highway 39. According to the witnesses, the woman matched the description seen by the truck driver of the woman floating in the river. She was wearing a blue plaid shirt and blue jeans. As soon as the police received this description, they wondered if it was the same woman. According to the eyewitnesses, the woman was last seen walking west along I-10 close to the truck scales at the Alabama-Mississippi border sometime between midnight and 1 o'clock a.m. on December 3rd. Many witnesses said the woman caught their attention because she appeared distressed. Several witnesses even approached the woman carrying the toddler and asked her if she needed help. But whenever someone offered to help, the woman allegedly refused and said that everything was fine. According to some of these witnesses, the woman even became angry when they tried to help her. Another key witness approached the Jackson County investigators about the mysterious woman and toddler seen walking along I-10. This witness said that she had been monitoring CB radio in the area and overheard several truck drivers talk about the woman during the early morning hours of December 3rd. Many truck drivers explained how they tried approaching the woman because she was walking along the freeway, but the woman became angry when anyone approached her. Several of the truckers even expressed concerns that the toddler didn't have any shoes on and was barefoot. It was far too cold for a baby that age to be outside on the side of the freeway with no shoes on in the middle of the night. Investigators immediately began trying to find this woman because they believed the deceased toddler might be this woman's daughter, and this woman could be the same woman the truck driver spotted lying face down in the river but was nowhere to be found. But despite an intense effort to locate this mystery woman, the police didn't find her. Her body was never recovered from the river, and no one came forward to the police claiming to be the woman seen walking along I-10 wearing a blue plaid shirt and blue denim jeans carrying a toddler. Newspapers throughout Jackson County began publishing stories about the case. The articles talked about the child's discovery and the sightings on Interstate 10 and Highway 63. The hope was the stories would generate additional witnesses. Maybe there was a key witness out there who had the information the police needed to identify the toddler or find the missing woman. Many of these newspaper stories even featured forensic facial reconstructions of how the girl might have looked if she were still alive. They just needed one person to recognize the girl and call in an important tip. But that phone call never came. No one called the police with any promising information about who this girl was or who her mother was. In the early days of the investigation, a woman came forward to the police saying that she had given away her daughter. According to the woman, she gave her child away to a group of men. 
Initially, the police were hopeful that this woman's story was true and her daughter might be their unidentified child. But when Jackson County detectives investigated the woman's claim, it turned out to be false. As it turned out, the woman didn't actually have a daughter. She only had a son, and she hadn't given him away to a group of men. Now, it's unclear why exactly the woman came up with this story, but it had nothing to do with the investigation. So unfortunately, the woman's story was a waste of investigators' precious time. The girl discovered in the river on December 5th, 1982, remained nameless for several weeks, and the identity of the woman seen carrying her a few days before her discovery remained a mystery. Without an identity, the Jackson County Sheriff's Department had no choice but to label the toddler as a Jane Doe. She became known as Baby Jane. Early in the investigation, Mississippi locals Virgil Moore and his wife, Mary Ann Moore, started a fundraiser to raise money for baby Jane's funeral. Virgil and his wife, Mary Ann, couldn't imagine a baby being buried without a name or a proper burial. So they asked money from local businesses and funeral homes to ensure the toddler received a Christian burial. Mary Ann was the one who named the baby, Baby Jane, so she could at least have a name on her tombstone. Baby Jane's funeral was held at the Bethel Assembly Church in Jackson County, Mississippi. Hundreds of locals gathered at the church to mourn the loss of someone so young. It was especially tragic not knowing her true identity. Her funeral was attended by approximately 200 people, including four police officers who've served as pallbearers for her small casket. After an hour-long funeral paid for by the fundraising efforts of Virgil and Marianne Moore, baby Jane was buried at the Jackson County Cemetery in Mississippi. She was buried beneath a flat granite marker with a ceramic vase. Her headstone read, Baby Jane, and known only to God. The mystery surrounding her identity captured widespread attention. People started referring to her as Baby Jane and Delta Dawn. She got the nickname Delta Dawn because she was discovered near a river delta. The Dawn part of her name came because her body was found in the early morning hours of December 5, 1982. And for years, she would be known simply as Delta Dawn. Delta Dawn's true identity remained a mystery for the next several years. How or why she was thrown off that bridge into the river was a complete puzzle. Investigators didn't even know the identity of the woman seen in the area carrying a barefoot toddler either. There were so many unanswered questions for so many years. This case was particularly difficult for investigators because of the victim's age. But there seemed to be one theory the police stuck to over the years. And that theory was that the woman seen carrying the toddler near the I-10 bridge and Mississippi State Highway 63 was the child's mother. And the mother either intentionally or unintentionally threw the baby off the bridge and into the river. But what happened to the mother after that? Over the years, investigators theorized after the woman threw her child off the bridge, she might have committed suicide. This theory explains the truck driver's story 
who claimed to have seen a woman matching her description face down in the river. But if this woman is Delta Dawn's mother, why hasn't she been found? Especially if she committed suicide. Her body seemed to have simply vanished. Hey, Forensic Tales listeners, Courtney here. Do you hate listening to ads? Well, you can listen to every single episode of this show ad-free through Patreon, starting for just $3 a month. And what's great? You don't have to change how you listen. You can still enjoy ad-free episodes of Forensic Tales through most podcast apps. As a patron, you'll also get other great perks, like weekly bonus episodes. This is where I give you my reaction to each week's story that I don't share in regular episodes. But more importantly, your support means I can continue to deliver high-quality weekly true crime stories. Don't forget, Forensic Tales is just a one-woman show. If you're interested in learning more, go to patreon.com slash forensictales. That's patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. There's also a link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. At the time of Delta Dawn's discovery in December 1982, police departments had limited forensic and DNA testing capabilities. In a best-case scenario, investigators could collect DNA for blood typing. If DNA was collected from a body or crime scene, They could identify the person's blood type, but that was it. Police departments couldn't do much with DNA in the early 1980s. The first national DNA database didn't come around until many years later. CODIS began as a pilot project in 1990, eight years after Delta Dawn's body was found. And the DNA database didn't become fully operational until eight years later in 1998. So even if investigators in 1982 had DNA, it didn't do much. The investigation into Delta Dawn's identity remained cold for years. For many years, people wondered if we would ever find out who Delta Dawn was or who her mother was. In 2002, 20 years later, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children got involved. They hired a forensic artist to create a facial reconstruction of the toddler. In 2002, a two-dimensional facial reconstruction was created to show how she might have looked at the time of her death. A picture of the two-dimensional facial reconstruction was then posted to the organization's website. They also deployed two members of Teen Adam, a group of retired law enforcement officers with experience in these types of cases, to gather more information, including crime scene photos of Delta Dawn. By 2002, investigators also had the power of social media and the internet. At the time of Delta Dawn's discovery in 1982, most people didn't have the internet. So in 2002, the reconstructed image of Delta Dawn was circulated across the internet. But the 2D image in 2002 didn't lead to much it turned out to be a massive letdown for investigators. On the 25th anniversary of Delta Dawn's funeral, the Jackson County community held a memorial service in her honor. The service was held at the same place where 200 community members attended her original funeral 25 years earlier at the Bethel Assembly Church in Jackson. 
two Alabama women named Marjorie Brinker and Lynn Rouse organized the memorial. Both women agreed to organize the service because they, quote, couldn't comprehend why someone would throw a baby into the river like that, end quote. The people of Jackson County were determined to find out who the Delta Dawn was. If they could identify her, they could take the next step and figure out what happened to her. If they knew who she was or her mother, they could finally sleep better, understanding what happened to her and who was responsible for her drowning in that river. By 2009, Jackson County investigators decided to try something new. It had been 27 years since she was found, so they needed to do something different if they were going to try to identify her. And by 2009, DNA and forensic testing had come a long way since the early 1980s. Jackson County officials began by exhuming Delta Dawn's body in early 2009. After the body was exhumed, it was returned to the county medical examiner's office so any remaining DNA could be extracted. Unfortunately, though, after almost three decades, there wouldn't have been much, if any, soft tissue remaining in the body. So investigators extracted Delta Dawn's DNA from her skeletal remains and bones. Once they had her DNA, a sample was submitted to both the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. From there, investigators with both organizations compared the DNA to DNA collected from unsolved murders and missing person reports. After a lengthy search, the DNA comparison didn't turn anything up. Delta Dawn's DNA didn't match anyone in the databases. So the next move investigators made with Delta Dawn's DNA was to look for her mother. But that search didn't lead anywhere either. Investigators didn't find anyone in the databases with a DNA profile similar to Delta Dawn. When the DNA comparison turned up empty in 2009, Delta Dawn's remains were reburied at Jackson County Cemetery. Then investigators tried something else. With advances in forensic technology, detectives created several forensic facial reconstructions of the toddler in an ongoing attempt to identify her. The first forensic facial reconstruction image was made shortly after her discovery, and the most recent was created decades later in 2014. Some images were created to depict how she looked when she died around 18 months old but other images attempted to show how she might look when she got older. Each time a forensic facial reconstruction was created, it was then circulated through the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children databases. But the reconstructions never generated anything promising or her true identity. Following the latest forensic facial reconstruction created in 2014, the mystery of Delta Dawn's identity deepened. But unfortunately, it would be another five years before investigators saw any further progress in the case. In 2019, the Jackson County Sheriff's Department brought Delta Dawn's remains to Othram, hoping that new genetic testing would generate leads to help identify her. Othram is a private lab located in Texas specializing in complex and advanced DNA testing. According to its website, Othram is the first private laboratory 
built to apply the power of modern parallel sequencing to forensic evidence. Their scientists are experts at finding and analyzing human DNA from trace amounts or degraded or contaminated samples. Generally speaking, private forensic labs like Othram in Texas can successfully test even the tiniest or most degraded DNA samples. These labs can do things most publicly funded law enforcement crime labs can't. Since Othram opened its doors for business in 2018, they have assisted many police departments across the country in testing DNA in unsolved cold cases. They have assisted in countless unsolved murder investigations and helped identify many John and Jane Doe's. By 2019, Jackson County cold case detectives hoped Othram could help them finally identify Delta Dawn. For many police departments, using a private lab is their last resort. In most cases, they have already done everything possible to try to solve the case. But in cases like Delta Dawn, sometimes private labs can step in and help. But getting a private lab to conduct genetic genealogy isn't cheap. It can cost over $5,000 per case to conduct the proper testing and research. In Delta Dawn's case, the genetic testing was privately funded by a New York woman. This woman first heard about Delta Dawn's case when she was only eight years old. When she heard about the story, she was the same age as Delta Dawn would have been if she were still alive. When she heard the story about a woman carrying a toddler along Interstate 10 without shoes, the story broke her heart. So on her 40th birthday, she decided to do something to help move the case forward. She decided to privately fund the genetic genealogy testing. As soon as the Jackson County Sheriff's Department brought Delta Dawn's remains to Othram, their scientists got to work. Othram's experts applied proprietary enrichment methods and forensic-grade genome sequencing to create a genetic profile. This genetic profile of Delta Dawn was created in hopes of generating new investigative leads. Although the exact nature of Othram's proprietary enrichment methods isn't known, this is what their website says about their forensic-grade genome sequencing. According to Othram, forensic-grade genome sequencing applies all the powers of modern sequencing and genomics to forensics enabling human identification from the most challenging pieces of evidence. Now, the amount of DNA police departments submit to private labs like Othram can vary. Sometimes there is a relatively good amount of DNA, but that's not always the case. In Delta Dawn's case, Othram had less than one nanogram. To put this amount of DNA into perspective, one nanogram equals one billionth of a gram. Using the DNA equivalent to less than one nanogram, scientists at Othram were able to generate a complete DNA profile of Delta Dawn. Using the DNA profile, Othram began genealogical research on the sample, looking for familial matches. Through this genealogical research, they identified a woman in Joplin, Missouri. She was 57-year-old Teresa Spencer. She was the only person they found across several databases with DNA related to Delta Dawn.
As soon as Othram told Jackson County detectives they found a familial match in the case, detectives headed straight to Teresa Spencer's house in Joplin, Missouri. When they arrived at her house, Teresa Spencer's first thought was that they had found her sister's remains. That's the moment the police learned the name Alicia Ann Heinrich. Teresa Spencer told the investigators that her sister, Gwendolyn May Clemens, had been missing since 1982, and she also had an 18-month-old daughter named Alicia Ann Heinrich. After 38 years, Delta Dawn's real name was finally restored as Alicia Ann Heinrich. DNA testing confirmed that Teresa Spencer was her aunt, the first relative identified through genetic genealogy. And further testing proved Gwendolyn was Teresa's sister and the mother of Delta Dawn, Alicia Ann Heinrich, both of whom vanished in 1982. Gwendolyn Clemens married Alicia's father during her early 20s, and she gave birth to Alicia in 1981. At the time of Alicia's death, she was only 18 months old. Although Jackson County investigators continue to work on what happened to Gwendolyn and her daughter Alicia, investigators have a theory. Gwendolyn's family told the police that she might have gotten romantically involved with another man outside her marriage to her husband, and the man she was seeing was also married. It's suspected that Gwendolyn left her husband and took her daughter, 18-month-old Alicia, to Florida with her new boyfriend to start a new life. But this new life and relationship didn't work out. After Gwendolyn and Alicia traveled to Florida, the boyfriend returned to Missouri, but Gwendolyn and her daughter weren't with him. When the boyfriend returned to Missouri, he returned to his wife. He never told her about the affair with Gwendolyn. Instead, he came up with an excuse that he had some sort of mental breakdown and just needed to get away for a while. The wife took him back, but after only he sought counseling so that this would never happen again. Only it did happen again. A few weeks after leaving Gwendolyn and her daughter and returning home to his wife, he left again. This time, he met another woman and moved out. Alicia and her mom, Gwendolyn Clemens, were last seen by her family in Joplin, Missouri, right before the Thanksgiving holiday in 1982, just before Gwendolyn and her boyfriend traveled together to Florida. But when the boyfriend returned to Missouri alone, Gwendolyn was never heard from again. Several years after Gwendolyn disappeared, her unidentified boyfriend passed away from cancer. Unfortunately, he died long before investigators identified Delta Dawn or her mother. It's also unclear if Gwendolyn was the one seen carrying a toddler on Interstate 10. The skeletal remains of the unidentified African-American male found in the same river 60 yards away from Delta Dawn were also positively identified in 2020. When he was discovered, he was given the nickname Moss Point Jane Doe because investigators had no idea who he was. Through advanced DNA testing, he was identified as Gary Simpson. His positive identification made investigators officially conclude 
his death was unrelated to Alicia's case. Although his body was found in the same river while searching for Alicia's mother, his death was unrelated. He had been shot and killed about six months before Alicia was discovered. After three decades, Delta Dawn's true identity was finally revealed through genetic genealogy. Her gravestone once read, known only to God, but now reads Alicia Ann Heinrich. The search for Alicia's mother, Gwendolyn Clemens, continues. Although her family, including her sister, believes she was also killed, it's unclear what happened to her. She was last seen in Kansas City, Missouri, on or about November 24, 1982. She might have also been seen in Jackson County, Mississippi, near the Alabama state line on the night of December 3, 1982. However, these sightings haven't been confirmed as being her. Gwendolyn Clemens was 23 years old when she went missing in 1982. If she were alive today, she would be in her 60s. At the time of her disappearance, she was between 5 feet 2 inches and 5 feet 8 inches tall. She weighed anywhere from 105 to 135 pounds. She had hazel eyes and strawberry blonde hair, just like her daughter. One theory about the case is Gwendolyn threw her daughter Alicia over the bridge and then killed herself in a murder-suicide. This theory lines up with the medical examiner's findings that Alicia was suffocated and then thrown off the I-10 bridge. It also explains the truck driver's story about seeing the adult female in the water. But the theory doesn't explain where Gwendolyn's body is now. So if she also committed suicide by jumping off the bridge, why haven't we found her body? In a December 2020 press conference, Jackson County Sheriff Mike Azell told reporters, quote, We do not know if Gwendolyn is dead or alive at this point. We're assuming the worst, but we don't know that for sure, end quote. A second possible theory is that Gwendolyn's unidentified boyfriend murdered both Gwendolyn and Alicia. After December 1982, the boyfriend allegedly returned to Missouri on his own without Gwendolyn or her daughter. People who suspect the boyfriend had something to do with Alicia's murder and her mom's disappearance say the two could have gotten into a fight. And maybe Gwendolyn left with her daughter Alicia, and that's why she was seen walking along I-10. Then the boyfriend followed her and murdered Gwendolyn and her daughter. But getting additional information directly from the boyfriend to prove this theory is impossible. He passed away several years ago. However, he is still considered a possible suspect in the case. Jackson County authorities continue collecting evidence and conducting interviews to find out who killed 18-month-old Alicia and what happened to her mother. Anyone with information about this case or Gwendolyn Clemens' whereabouts is asked to contact Jackson County Sheriff's Department at 228-769-3036 or Mississippi Coast Crime Stoppers at 877 787 5989. To share your thoughts on the Delta Dawn story, be sure to follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. To find out what I think about the case, sign up to become a patron 
at patreon.com slash forensic tales. After each episode, I release a bonus episode where I share my personal thoughts and opinions about the case. You'll want to listen to this one because I'm going to share with you what I think happened to her and her mom. Don't forget to subscribe to Forensic Tales so you don't miss an episode. We release a new episode every Monday. If you love the show, consider leaving us a positive review or tell friends and family about us. You can also help support the show through Patreon. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Please join me next week. We'll have a brand new case and a brand new story to talk about. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings. Forensic Tales is a Rockefeller Audio production. The show is written and produced by me, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. For a small monthly contribution, you can help create new compelling cases for the show, help fund research, and assist with production and editing costs. For supporting the show, you'll become one of the first to listen to new ad-free episodes and snag exclusive show merchandise not available anywhere else. To learn about how you can support the show, head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Forensic Tales or simply click the support link in the show notes. You can also support the show by leaving a positive review or telling friends and family about us. Forensic Tales is a podcast made possible by our Patreon producers, Tony A., Nicole L., David B., Nicole G., Paula G., Christine B., Karen D., Sherry A., Elizabeth M., Michael D., Lisa S., Nicola, and Nora. If you'd like to become a producer of the show, head over to our Patreon page or email me at Courtney at ForensicTales.com to find out how you can become involved. For a complete list of sources used in this episode, please visit ForensicTales.com. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings. Thank you.